On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge in a pear tree. And I said, well, thank you, my true love, but you know, a partridge is the kind of bird that makes its nest on the ground. You wouldn't be likely to find one in a pear tree or any other kind of tree for that matter. And my true love said to me, Well, I didn't ask any questions. I thought of you when I saw it. I hope you like it. And on the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. And I said, Oh, good, more birds. Tell me, why are they called turtle doves? And I couldn't help noticing that you're giving me a duplicate of the partridge you gave me yesterday. What's going on there? And my true love said to me, Look, if you don't like these gifts, now's the time to speak up, because we've got another ten days of this. And I said, No, no, just curious. And I don't want to spoil the flow, because I heard that in just a few days, I'm getting five gold rings. And my true love said to me, Yeah, about that. You may have misheard. What I really got you is five gold spinks. A gold spink is another kind of bird. And I said, My true love, I have to admit, I don't even know what's going on here. You're giving me all these birds, you're repeating gifts day after day, and what does it even mean that there are 12 days of Christmas? Christmas is just one day. And if we keep it up like this with all the gifts, that means that by the end of 12 days, I'm going to have 364 gifts total. And my true love said to me, It's actually a pretty interesting story. It's lost on most of us today, even though everyone hears the song every year. You should look into it. And I said, my true love, I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. Nowadays, we think of the Christmas season as the festive time leading up to Christmas, usually starting more or less officially the day after Thanksgiving. But traditionally, the time leading up to Christmas is recognized as the Advent season. And for much of its history, it was a time of restraint and religious devotion. The period from Christmas Day to the eve of Epiphany was the official Christmas season, with festivities lasting for 12 days and ending on what's known as Twelfth Night, which, as you may know, is also the title of a Shakespeare play. He was believed to have written it specifically to be played as Twelfth Night Entertainment to close out the Christmas season. The Twelve Days and Twelfth Night in and of themselves deserve their own episode. Today, we're just looking at the song. So let's start right at the beginning. The text was printed without the music, as far as our uh, earliest records go, uh, in uh, 1780. That's Mark Sunderham, and he's a language professor at Laurentian University in Canada. He and his wife Avon produced the language podcast and YouTube channel, The Endless Knot. Now, one big reason it first appeared without music is that it was never intended to be a song. After all, most Christmas carols from that time would include some kind of religious reference. The first time it showed up in print was in a children's book titled Mirth Without Mischief. But how long the lyrics may have existed before they first appeared in print, nobody's sure. It seems to have originally been a game. It's not sort of carol that we think of today. It doesn't particularly refer to any religious topic or anything like that. Instead, it seems to be a, a kind of outgrowth of this, this idea of during the Christmas season, there would be revelry and games and celebration. And this particular game is the idea is, you know, with each verse, you add another item to an ever-growing list and see if you can remember the whole list as you get into more and more items. And if you flub something, then you you sort of lose the game. This kind of elimination-style game is what's known as a forfeit game. The published lyrics, if you can even call them that, would go on to be set to music. And the, the melody was just an adaptation of a folk tune that already existed. And that happened in 1909 by an English composer named Frederick Austin. I should point out that some have argued that the song really does include religious references, it's just that they're veiled. 
For example, that the three French hens represent the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. But the simple truth is that this is just some convenient theory that showed up in very recent history. It has no basis in historical record at all. And besides, there are more than two dozen published versions of the song with significant variation among them. In one version, for example, the gift giver is not my true love, but rather my mother. In another, the pear tree is replaced with a juniper tree. There have been ducks a-quacking and lambs a-bleeding and all kinds of other stuff over the centuries. So if the items aren't secret religious symbols, well then what are they? Well, sometimes the simplest answer is the best one. There's no reason to think they're anything other than the kinds of things that would appear in a children's game or be published in a children's book at that time. But that doesn't mean we can't still do some exploring. And that's why I wanted to talk to Mark Sunderham. The Latin word for partridge was uh, perdix. It goes back to an Indo-European root, which means to fart. Uh, and in fact, fart is the only cognate-related word in English to, to partridge. See that? At least we can have some fun with some of the word origins. And perdix produced the French word perdri, uh, which sounds a bit like pear tree. And so someone along the way might have got confused and reanalyzed that French word as pear tree. And what about turtle doves? Well, the funny thing is that a turtle originally wasn't a turtle. The word turtle existed uh, first to refer to what we now think of as the turtle dove. And the word turtle on its own, uh, historically, was just used to refer to that bird. Basically, it's imitative of the sound of the bird, the sort of cooing that we associate with the dove. And those calling birds aren't actually calling. That's just a misheard and reinterpreted version of the original lyric which had them as collie birds, or literally coley birds, as in coal-colored birds. In other words, blackbirds. And as you've already heard, those five gold rings may be another example of the original lyric being misheard. It may refer to goldspinks, another name for goldfinches. Or it may refer to the rings around the necks of pheasants. Either way, it was likely keeping with the bird motif of days one through four. On days six through nine, we have pipers piping and drummers drumming and so on. In other words, it breaks out from the bird motif and shifts to human characters. I mean, it may just be a question that originally the game was shorter and it was just the birds. And then someone added to the list uh, a bunch of other things. Now, I understand that the song doesn't get a lot of radio play nowadays and that very few people would claim it as their favorite Christmas song. But there are some versions that do deserve a listen. My personal favorites are the ones sung by the characters from Sesame Street and the ones sung by the characters from The Muppet Show, along with John Denver. Maybe it's that hearing all the different voices breaks up the repetition. Well, no matter which version you prefer, remember that when the song was written, Christmas Eve was not much of a celebration. It seems almost inconceivable nowadays, and certainly so to anyone who grew up knowing the magic and anticipation of the night before Christmas, like Colby in Missouri remembers in this Christmas memory. Christmas Eve is the most magical night of the year, especially when you're three years old. That year, I decided I would spend the night in the living room in my tiny Mickey Mouse tent. When I heard Santa at his job, I planned to pop out and tell him how much I appreciated his services. Come to find out, at midnight, the whole idea of Santa becomes terrifying to a three-year-old. Something woke me up, and for the first time in my life, I felt doubt. How do I know he's as jolly as they say he is? 
He's the kind of guy, after all, who can live in a winter cabin in isolation for centuries. He's the kind of guy who only comes out at night. He's the kind of guy who feels good about stealing cookies. We don't even have a chimney. How does he get inside our house? Suddenly, I didn't think meeting this kind of guy would be a good idea. I remained as still as I could and shut my eyes really tight and tried to hold my breath. Maybe he would just think this was an inconspicuous Mickey Mouse tent in a living room with no little kids inside. I eventually fell asleep again and went on to enjoy many Christmases believing in Santa, but after that year I always slept in my room on Christmas Eve. And I always locked the door, just in case. Colby and I have a few things in common. In addition to loving Christmas, we both love coffee. Me, I drink it black and make it in a French press, as nature intended. And Colby owns the Perengo Coffee Company in Sykeston, Missouri. And we're both writers. In a past life, writing was my career. Nowadays, I get my fix by writing these episodes and blogging at christmaspast.media. And Colby has written a book about entrepreneurship called Small Town Big Money. You'll find links to Perengo Coffee, Small Town Big Money, and Mark Sunderham's Endless Knot podcast and YouTube channel in the show notes for this episode at christmaspast.media. But how about you? I'd love to share one of your Christmas memories with the rest of the Christmas Past family this season. Just record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Or leave a voicemail on my Google Voice line at 650-394-7162. Christmas Past is produced in sunny San Mateo, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. Thanks to Mark and Colby and to my true love, Christine, who you heard there in the opening. And as always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even send you a sticker to say thanks. Email me for details about that. This show is a proud member of the Christmas Podcast Network, a collection of the best Christmas shows around. Ones like Christmas Creeps, where hosts Joe, John, and Karen keep the Christmas spirit alive year-round by watching and discussing terrible Christmas movies. What makes for a terrible Christmas movie? Well, you'll have to listen to them to find out. You can check out Christmas Creeps and all the other great shows in the Christmas Podcast Network at christmaspodcastnetwork.com. I hope your Christmas season has been merry and bright so far, and I hope you'll join me again next time for more stories from Christmas Past.